0: Sticks and Molder, a comedy podcast at the intersection of faith and popular culture.
1: I'm Sarah. She/her. I'm Maeve. She/her. And today will we. will <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> <laughs> and today we will be talking about myths and legends with a very special
2: guest, Carlina. Yay, I'm happy to be here, guys. My <laughs> pronouns are she, her? Yeah. Carlina
1: is one of our OG podcast rider dies, and <laughs> we are extremely grateful for her.
2: <laughs> and I'm to- grateful to have Mystics and Mulder Magic in my podcast lineup. Aww. <laughs> So
0: sweet.
1: Okay, so uh, before we dive into each of the legends that we will be talking about today, I'm just going to give a quick overview of the difference between legend and myth. So a legend contains some facts, but becomes exaggerated to the point that real people or events take on a larger than life quality. So there's a lot of like embellishment and exaggeration. Two examples, um, according to diffin.com, uh, <laughs> are Johnny Appleseed and King Arthur. Uh, Johnny Appleseed is this like legendary folk hero who has planted a bunch of trees all around the United States. And there is actually some historical evidence that a man called John Chapman actually did travel west and planted nurseries of apple trees. Um, But the whole, like, oh, he was this, like, magical man who went around and planted trees (laughs) Um, has, you know, is a legend because it's been, like, exaggerated and aggrandized. Like, there is some evidence for... um, a King Arthur, who led the British against invaders, but the whole Arthurian legend, Knights of the Round Table, Camelot, are all, unfortunately, sorry Maeve, <laughs> likely made up and exaggerated.
0: <laughs> Sarah knows that I love Arthurian everything.
1: It was <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so sad. Um, so a myth, on the other hand, isn't based on any kind of fact but is symbolic storytelling um, used to teach a lesson, explain some of the mysteries of, of life and the human condition, explain a phenomenon of nature, or describe the customs, institutions, or religious rights of a people. So, for example, some of the stories that people tell about themselves as a collective would be the myth of Poseidon and Athena fighting to become the patron of the city and how Athens got to be called Athens. Um, And also, you know, the founding of Mexico City, which is that the uh, Mexican people who had been wandering around the desert saw a um, eagle with a snake in its beak perched atop a cactus and uh, knew that that was where, according to a prophecy, where they should... Uh, Construct their city. So these stories like the ones that I just mentioned, you know, connect people connect us and give people a shared identity Um, and it shows what is most important to us and what we hold most dear Um, Like I mentioned, we each will be um, Sharing a myth or a legend that we found particularly compelling or wanted to share with other people. Uh, So I'm going to go first. And I am sharing, really, this is just an excuse for me to talk about Hades Town, the musical, uh, <laughs> because I am talking about the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. So, Orpheus was the son of the god Apollo, who blessed him with incredible musical abilities. He could sing and play the lyre in a way that no other human could. Um, and then one day he fell in love with a beautiful woman named Eurydice, and they were subsequently married. But unfortunately, after just a few, just a short while of, of being married, uh, she dies. In the musical, she and Orpheus were very poor and barely struggling And so one day she meets Hades and he promises that she'll never know hunger or cold again. And if she'll come with him, um, he'll take her to Hades, Hades town, and she'll be, you know, so comfortable and just like live a great life. Um, And she makes a pact with Hades and descends into the underworld with him. Uh, But like the original uh, legend is a bit different. There's You know, there's a bunch of different explanations, but the point is she dies. (laughs) Um, And Orpheus, you know, is just so grief stricken that he decides that he is going to go into the underworld to rescue the love of his life. Um, And thanks to the help of the gods of Apollo, he and his musical abilities, you know, he plays the lyre for Cerberus. Um, he makes it, and again, like using his musical talents, essentially like woos Hades <laughs> or convinces him to let them, let him bring Eurydice back over. Um, but Hades wouldn't let them go so easily. He made one condition that he had to walk in front of Eurydice and the whole time and he couldn't look back at her until they had crossed over or else she would be stuck in the underworld forever. So for a while you know everything is fine they're walking along and they trust each other but then as the journey gets longer and longer and even as they reach the edge his fear gets the better of him and he looks back and you know, his anxiety had been telling him, you know, she's not there, like, she's not following you, something happening, you need to look back, and at the very edge, he looked back, and she's still there, and she was like, I was here the whole time, oh, it just gets to me, (laughs) um, and so she has to stay in the underworld, crying tears, 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 um, and it's so sad because like in the musical they have this like duet, even though they they're not like singing, they're like singing to each other, but neither one of them knows, like can hear the other person singing. So it's just like a very tragic duet. <gasps> um, and so it's just so sad because she's like trying to reassure him and that she's there and like she loves him and like she's all in, but but he like can't hear her. Um and so yeah, there's a tragic ending to it. Um, But also, I would like to make the point that this is not a spoiler alert, because this story is, like, over a thousand years old, so you can't blame me for
2: that. Wait, wait. Speaking of spoiler alerts, this is, like, giving me major The Good Place vibes, so I just want to talk for a second about this. Like, tune out if you haven't gotten to season four i'm in the middle of season four but like this is kind of reminding me of the part where um jason goes down into the bad place to try and rescue his love interest a little bit i haven't gotten like i'm in the middle of it where they're like in the bad place and no one has gotten out yet so i don't know what's going to happen but i feel like there's parallels
1: yes, yes 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 there's like this continual theme of like the tr- like this tragedy of like looking back or like having to like get someone that is impossible to get to and the one that like came to my mind and maybe it was just because i am reading or at least attempting to read parts of the old testament just to like prepare for a seminary I was thinking of, like, Lot's wife and the fact that she, like, looked back and she died and just this whole, like, image or theme of, like, this tragic gaze, I just find very interesting. One of the lines in the last song that just, this whole musical gets to me, but this line specifically really gets to me, um, is one that says, it's a sad song, but we sing it anyway. And I just find that so, I don't know, sadly beautiful, tragically beautiful you know, the, the importance of, of telling stories, even though we, we already know how the ending is going to be, and that it's, it's like really sad, and it's not going to change, but we tell the stories to continue to honor, you know, that pain and the heartache, but we also, you know, despite all that, despite the tragedy and the sadness, that we also honor and recognize the hope that is within those stories. There is this, I'm not, I think he's a Methodist pastor. His last name is Chu, and he talks about how one theme in his sermons that he keeps going back to is this idea of of compost and how life grows within and among the dirt and you know just like the nastiness that is scraps of life. Um, and I just I just think that's a really beautiful metaphor for you know the human condition. And I think really ties in well with, with Hades Town and like finding you know the little nuggets of hope, and life springing up, between all the, the sadness and tragedy. And one last thing that I wanted to say is, it's really, the phrase "It's a sad song, but what we sing it anyway," is really reflective of the gospel as well because we know that there are tragic parts and just really cruel parts, but we continue to like tell it anyway, because there is life and hope and joy that can be found there. And, you know, telling these stories over and over and over again to honor it. And, and you can like see new insights into it, which is something that when I first started like reading the lectionary, which is for those who don't know, it's that the Bible is divided into, you know, different stories and so often, you know, on the same day we, like, of the year, we go over the, those passages, and I was like, this is kind of dumb, like, why are we, why are we only talking about these, like, gospel passages, or these, like, few Old Testament or Hebrew Bible passages, and then I, I think I began to understand better that, you know, there is a lot of goodness that comes from, rereading and rereading and rereading the same text because there's, there's truth and wisdom that we have yet to uncover. Um, and that if we keep reading, we might be able to. So yeah, that was Town. I know that was like really quick and dirty, but I feel like if I really have gotten into it, I would have like been ugly crying on this podcast and we cannot have
0: that. <laughs> I have, well, so many thoughts, but I have two thoughts to start off our little, little convo. I have a pin, <laughs> okay, from the store called Bean Forest on Etsy, and it says Lot's wife deserves a name, and it's a picture of Lot's wife, um, and she is, like, becoming the pillar of salt. It's interesting, and I, I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but, like, how many parallels there are um, between different traditions and different, um, I don't know, legends and myths. Uh, and then, also, what you were saying about rereading the text, I find it, I found that especially during the pandemic, I've been really drawn to things that I know is you know are familiar to me and will give me comfort. And again, like we were joking about like Arthurian stuff, but like yeah. I know the story of King Arthur pretty well, and I don't think it's coincidence that like I'm going back to those texts that I read, you know, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something I think really comforting about that—that that you know, it's how something's going to end. Um, Whereas like if I'm starting something new, I think I feel reluctant to do it because I I feel anxious not knowing how something's going to end. And when we're in a time of such uncertainty, like I need to know what's going to happen. And a lot of, um, you know, Jewish scholarship and research on the Hebrew Bible, there's this understanding that the Hebrew Bible is a text that should be meditated on for an entire lifetime and that you can never stop learning from it, Um, that your understanding of it changes with the time and, you know, grows with you.
2: It's reminding me a little bit too of Lectio Divina and the idea that even reading something multiple times in succession, like right away, you can get new insights into something. And like Maeve said, if you read something after years have passed and different things have happened in your life or even months or days, you can get new insights or once you've done other readings, but even just repetition in the moment can bring you new wisdom or new angles of seeing something. Well, if you're like me and you don't have a very long-term memory for media that you read or watch or engage with, then you might re-watch something you're familiar with and you have those comforting familiar vibes, but you also have no idea what's going to happen because you've completely forgotten the plot or parts of it. <laughs> My brother always teases me because when we watch new Marvel movies, I'm like, so wait, why is Thor acting like this towards Loki? And he's like, don't you remember what happened? I'm like, no. (laughs) That's why you have to um, do a little refresher before you go into those movies if if you have the same problem that I do. But I don't do that refresher. I just am that annoying person whispering in my brother's ear during the movie.
0: (laughs) Thor and Loki are super, super old stories that have been retold. Um, And this kind of relates back to the fanfic episode. (laughs) Everything comes back to fanfic, if you didn't already know. Um, But the story of Orpheus and Eurydice has been retold so many times. Um, I remember my first year of college, uh, our theater department put on um, Eurydice by Sarah Rule, and that's a retelling from Eurydice's perspective because it's usually like from um, Orpheus's and then we have Hadestown and there are so many different like incarnations of the story and so like you were saying Carlina it's it feels familiar even when we play with it and even when we make it our own because you when you're like retelling a story you're doing fanfic you're going to have these you know comforting vibes these similar vibes so you know in essence what the story is about and what to expect from the characters even if the ending looks different or even if there are plot points that are different.
2: Yeah same with the like modern day Shakespeare adaptations that we have in movies or even other yeah. things like I just watched Easy A with Emma Stone and oh so like, I kind of know movie. the basis but <laughs> when you watch those it's it's a whole new world.
0: <laughs> wow Woodchuck Todd is my um
2: <laughs> your what
0: man <laughs> <laughs> the, love, the love of my life. I just watched that a few okay, so I watched a season and a half of Gossip Girl, which, you know, was fine. And then um I watched that movie and it just <laughs> Sarah, have you seen Easy A? Yes,
1: but it's been such a long time and literally the <laughs> the, <laughs> the only thing that I remember about that movie. <laughs> what was it like the counselor got chlamydia from (laughs)
0: yes from the student it was like 25 like a super 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 senior
1: this is the only thing that I remember from oh no and I remember this part is was really good too the like when she gets that singing card and it's like I got it I got it I got it like stops it and then she like sings it all the time yeah, those are the two parts I remember.
0: <laughs> great
2: those are parts great to
0: really. <laughs> oh, I love it. I should also make this connection between Gossip Girl and Woodchuck Todd. Um, <laughs> Penn Badgley plays uh, Dan Humphreys and is also, and this isn't a spoiler because this is like seven or whatever years old, and he's Gossip Girl. Um, and he also plays with Todd. They're very different characters.
2: He's in You as well. And that's a very creepy version. Oh of my him. gosh.
0: You is just Dan Humphreys on steroids. Honestly. Okay.
2: Watch that because it's,
1: even though I haven't had any experience with stalking or stalked or anything more than some slight internet stalking, I, it's just too scary.
0: Yeah, it's too much.
2: Alright, so today I would like to talk to you all about the cannibal of Camer. Not sure if I'm nailing that pronunciation, but I do know that the source it's from is the Tamara Mariam. and um, That is an Ethiopian text that I'm going to dive into a, in a minute, but just to give you some details about where I got this information from, I relied on um, The text a translation of the text itself, and then also a lecture by Professor Gattachou Haile that he delivered via Zoom on May 23rd um, of this year. And I found it online, watched it after the fact on the HMML Hill Library Facebook page, HMML Hill Museum Library. Um, And then also a journal article by Scholar Wendy Laura Belcher called Mary Saves the Maneater, value in the medieval Ethiopian Marian Miracle tale of the Kennibal of Kemmer. So the first thing that I want to say about this is that it's kind of hard to place it on the legend myth spectrum because parts of it seem very larger than life, so to speak, but as a religious text, its extremeness and maybe even exaggerations serve to make theological points. So in this sense, it's sort of more like a myth or a parable because the incredible aspects that it includes intend to impart some sort of lesson or takeaway. So just to get into the background of this text, um, in the 1200s, Bartholomew of Trent took some European and Middle Eastern tales about Mary that were written in Latin and brought them to Egypt, where they were translated into Arabic. And um, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus, by the way. In the 1300s, those texts were brought to Ethiopia and translated into Ge'ez, which is the ancient scholarly and liturgical language of the Ethiopian church. And they combined these translated stories with Marian tales of their own. And then the oldest copy of this combination compilation text they made, the Tamara Miriam was created in December 1400. So the Tamara Miriam is a constantly shifting text, and its copies range from including three stories to 300 stories. So it really depends on what version you're looking at. But of the 72 miracles that are included in a copy from the 17th century, I'm going to focus on one story today called the Cannibal of Kemmer and it is the last one in those collections. And as Professor Getachu Haile commented, it just made it into the book, just barely. Professor Haile, who's the leading expert on Ga'ez literature, believes the story was created by the clergy at the court of Dawat I in Ethiopia. And the story is also called The Miracle of the Maneater or the Story of Belai. So enough background. I hope I didn't overwhelm you with some of the facts, but maybe you nerded out about it. So let's just go into the actual story. It's about a man who eats 78 people. He eats his friends, he eats his servants, and he even eats his own wife and children. Then when he runs out of people to devour, he leaves town and he carries with him only a leather canteen of water. As he leaves the town, he comes across a farmer who's plowing his fields. That man is too strong to be captured and eaten, so he tries to trade his golden bow and arrow for the plowman's oxen, but he's unsuccessful, and then he asks the plowman to point him to a nearby cave where he can stay the night. I guess he's exhausting from eating so many people. It sounds like a lot of work. I'm not really sure. Never done it myself. But anyway, on the way to the cave, he comes across a beggar whose whole body is covered with sores and scabs. And he's tempted to eat the man, but then he decides that his sores make him unappetizing um, for his personal tastes. So the poor man asks for a drink of water and invokes the name of St. Mary. And after this man's repeated request, the man-eater finally complies he's gonna give the man a drink of water. So he says to himself, yes, even I have heard since childhood that Mary is good, saving with her prayers and delivering people from hell. So as of now, I place myself under her protection too. Only a little of the cannibal's water had crossed the beggar's parched lips when the man-eater snapped or snatched, excuse me, the canteen away. He refused to give the poor man any more. And then he entered the cave thinking to himself, I would rather die than eat bread. And so he died of hunger and thirst because he'd run out of people to eat. Damn. <laughs> yes. Deep breath, <laughs> but that's not the end of the story, fortunately. So the angels of darkness come in and they're ready to take him away. But St. Mary appears, searching to see if the man-eater had done any good deed in his life. She sees the flask of water by his side and knows that he gave it to the beggar as an act of charity for the sake of her favor. So the, angel, the angels bring the soul of the man-eater before God, who pronounces, and I quote the translation, Go, take this soul into hell, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. End quote. Yet Mary intercedes on the man's, eat, the man eater's behalf, prostrating herself before her son Christ and pleading that he send the man eater to heaven. Jesus orders that the scale be brought before him. And so then the angels weigh the man's, the man eater's acts on this scale and they put the murder of the 78 people he'd eaten into balance with the drink of water really the like tiny sip of water um, offered in the name of Mary. And when they do this, they find that a single moment of kindness and even kind of half-made reluctant kindness, to be honest, outweighs years of horrific sin. And so the worst sinner in the entire world, according to the tale, enters heaven while the angels of light rejoice. And that is almost the end of the story. There's just one sort of lesson that ties it all up. And what happens is um, the narrator states, my brothers, due to such a little thing, the man eater was saved because of just a handful of water. How then will everyone who holds Mary's commemoration Builds a church dedicated to her or trusts in her prayer, not also find sure salvation. And that's how it wraps up. So the Ethiopian Orthodox priest and scholar Molaku Terefe told Professor Wendy Belcher, who translated this um, with a team of other scholars, in a conversation that when he was in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church Seminary in the 1990s, One of the instructors explained that the tale of the cannibal was very, very bad theology and should be struck from the canon. And some people can totally read it this way, but personally, I think that this story is revolutionary theology and we have a lot to learn from it. Um, And I just like it. So what I most love about this story is that Mary delights in even one deed and searches for the goodness in every person, no matter what they've done in the past. Um, I love how she boldly approaches the throne after Jesus has already delivered his judgment. So like Jesus, like kind of already laid down the ruling here. And she's like, no, 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 reconsider this. And so even though like kind of from a more, I guess, Protestant background, like we think of Jesus being the like central figure and the one with all the power, like Mary is Jesus' mom and she's gonna tell him what's the right thing to do. Um, And so even though he's super powerful, Jesus listens to his mama. And it's a good thing that he does because she's right. Um, On God's skills of justice, one begrudging act of kindness is strong enough to outweigh 78 terrible deeds, at least in this story. So I like to think that every time we humans do something that's right in God's eyes, um, God and the angels throw their hands in the air and sing and dance. Every time we make a choice that brings more good into the world, I like to picture them blowing noisemakers or tapping a rhythm out on their heavenly drums or hanging up balloons and streamers in celebration. I think that God loves to see us grow and loves to see us doing God's kingdom work here on earth. And the short this story shows God's radical enveloping, no matter what, love, and
0: all through me. Go ahead, Maeve. Oh, no. <laughs> we were just, like, staring at each other on Zoom because we're so in awe of Carlina. <laughs> I have so, like I said, with Hadestown, and there is a special little spot in my heart for Hadestown, but also for Mary, so <laughs> I have so much to say, um, I guess the first thing I like to talk about is just like the migration of the story and the translation and that, um, you know, this was written in Latin, brought to Egypt, translated into Arabic, then it made its way to Ethiopia, and then it was translated again. And now we have the story, super accessible online um, and written into English. And I think it just makes me realize that so many of the stories that we hold dear Um, have been translated, have been passed down, and move around the world, especially now in an even more globalized society. Um, And I think um, you said that this story just barely made it into the book, like into the larger canon of these Marian stories. And so it's just so lucky that so many of the stories that we have that are old, that are myths, or even just, you know, are tales that were passed to some uncle's, like, cabinet or desk and then survived a fire, or, like, um, Julian of Norwich's works were literally, like, carried and protected by women for years um, and secured. And so it's just really astounding that we're able to have access to these stories and think about the different hands that have helped in the production of these stories and also how the translators across time have transformed them.
2: I think... (laughs)
0: Well, the first
1: thing that came, that like, <laughs> mind with this story was um, <laughs> the song from Hall and Oates that's like, "She's a man either, you
0: know? <laughs> oh, oh, here she comes, <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, it is that one. So, <laughs> in the story, I was like, mm-hmm, hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um. I was listening to uh, my favorite murder the other day and they were talking about I can't remember his name but um, this guy who like murdered his his family like his wife and his two or three kids got remarried murdered her and in his trial (laughs) he made the argument (laughs) which I mean Anyway, he made the argument <laughs> I am a good citizen, like I pay taxes, like it these two days were just blips <laughs> in my oh, life.
0: <laughs> state of passion.
1: Yeah. Well it's like it just kind of erases the fact that it was premeditated. Anyway, the point is that on you know, in our society, people are judged by the worst thing that they've ever done but like you were saying, Carlina, the kingdom of God totally just like upends that. And if you like have asked this one kind act, like that is just, you know, the angels are just going to be like, hell yeah. Well, maybe not. <laughs> They're gonna The angels are going to be super stoked. And like, that is just, you know, a win in the kingdom of, of heaven. Um, and I just think that's really beautiful because that totally just upends and dislodges our logic of like punishment and revenge and like people need to get their come Um And God is just like, nah, <laughs> it's Mary. But
2: anyway, yeah. Well, it's such a hopeful story because how this person was for a lot of their life or what they were most defined as and known for um, was, you know, his man eating and the fact that like just a half step in a positive direction right before he died was enough for saint mary is really awe striking Mm -hmm. yeah and and it and it gives hope in that just hat like one positive step or one move in towards a good thing like that that can be celebrated and then that can be like worthy of focus um you know that that's kind of like a big gear shift from a lot of what in more sort of conservative evangelical backgrounds you might have focused on. Mm
1: -hmm. Well since May talked about (laughs) art Our fanfic episode, I feel like I can bring in something from, like, the Good Place episode. (laughs) But I, you know, again, it's, like, that point of, like, are they being a better person than they were yesterday? And I feel like that just is, like, yes, like, that guy was, like, even if it's 0.1% more, like, became a better person than he was yesterday. And, like, regardless of, of, you know, afterlife kind of weighing the scales of good and evil, like regardless of that, I just think it's just like those little victories are just, I think like you've been saying, just really beautiful.
0: I just love the scene where he's in the cave and, you know, he's he's died from hunger and you have this vision of the angels of death coming and then Mary, I would imagine her like just, you know, bathed in light and saying, you know, stop <laughs> and, and telling and telling Jesus. And I think I'm really drawn to Marian's stories in general, because that's something as, you know, a Protestant that I didn't really grow up with a lot. And so Mary was this figure that we talked about, you know, during during Christmas or during Easter. But outside of that, I, I never really knew Mary as an intercessor until I came to college. And I just became fascinated I guess with her power and her strength and dignity and her way to um, I guess like stand up to her son (laughs) stand up to Jesus um, and convince him and be an advocate for people that even Jesus might overlook in the afterlife so cool to think about like in terms of motherhood
2: absolutely and with the Magnificat like we have Mary sort of standing up for um, people who are scorned in society and this Story is a little bit more nuanced because this person is definitely a perpetrator, definitely like someone who's harmed a lot of other people and families and you know the whole community or communities. But Mary is compelled to use her position to advocate. I I don't know. It, it leaves me with so many questions that I don't know what to do with, but I want to explore more about Mary. I'm, I'm kind of reminded of uh, Nadia boltz Weber talking about how she sort of as a Protestant wanted, was really intrigued by Catholic understandings of Mary um, and wanted to learn more.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I guess going to off, the, um, off of the sort of privilege angle is the attention to social classes in this story and the way that they're portrayed. Um, so that is an entirely different angle that you can look at this story. Uh, one thing that Professor Wendy Belcher pointed out is that the story, this is a quote, seems to depend on old tropes featuring nobles as monstrous masters with weird tastes and peasants as strong, sensible workers with good family values. That's why the cannibal is too weak To conquer the worthy plowman, even though he's killed dozens in town." That's the end of the quote. And and it illustrates the tension that exists between the wealthy and the poor. So Professor uh, Belcher also says, the tale reflects old beliefs that any wealthy person is a type of cannibal who lives off the labor of others and steals the very flesh from their bones.
1: Wow. So good. (laughs) being known that Mary is a Marxist like
2: like, pin that down right here a lot of like revolutionary vibes coming through this tale Um, and I'm sure many more conversations could be had about it but that's a little bit of a taste of it and one more thing that I wanted to point out is you should look up the rest of the miracles of Mary if you're all interested there's a lot more tales like this not like this um, that could provide you with a lot of insights and absolutely beautiful, beautiful illustrations. I kind of included one in our doc here that we're looking at. Maybe we can put it in the show notes or, or something like that. Um, but if you are interested, you can um, go to the Princeton-Ethiopian Miracles of Mary Project website, led by Dr. Belcher, and you can also see like the illustrations from this story Um, and others in some of the original manuscripts um, at dpul.princeton.edu in a part of their website called the Treasures of the Manuscripts Division.
0: Yes, and we're thinking about making a resources page on our website, so stay tuned for that. where We will include all of our beautiful links. Okay, so I was going to do <laughs> something Arthurian, but then I thought, you know what, that's been done before, and I talk about it every episode. <laughs> so why don't we go even older than that? And so I thought maybe I should like do a little deep dive into my namesake because I knew vaguely who Queen Maeve was as this um like pre-Christian in the sense that um she was ruling supposedly around the first century AD, which There was Christianity, like, in the British Isles, but conversion hadn't started yet. But I thought I would explore this because, you know, I've been, as I keep saying, I've been watching Merlin. I've been really interested in all of this and um, interested more in, I guess, like, Celtic religions and um, thinking about spirituality and the way that, like, druids and psychics and gnomes and fairies are all connected to this um, early form of religion in the British Isles in this indigenous religion too, um, which you know has been very popular in you know, D&D and in pop culture and in retellings of Arthurian stuff. But um, I, I don't think we, especially in the United States, have like really given a close eye to that as a piece of culture. It's kind of just something that I feel like has been appropriated. And um, so this is really fun to dive into my own, like, history, I guess, in terms of my name, Um, and so I picked just one tale from this larger canon of um, stories, which is called the Ulster Cycle, and Ulster is a province in Ireland um, at at the time of this, and so the source that I'm using, it's called the Tane, and it's translated from the Old English epic, um, Tane Bo Cullingay, and The edition that I have is from 2007 and it was translated by Kieran Carson. Um, And yeah, so I'm going to start talking about it and then some of its influences. And I'm also going to use, you know, some help from good old Wikipedia for my secondary sources. We love Wikipedia. Whoever fills out all of the Wikipedia entries, honestly, they all deserve medals and awards and my deepest gratitude because where would we be without them? How would I find out anything without Wikipedia? Anyways, um, also Warrior Queens by, Ant- by Antonia Frazier, um, I'm using as my secondary source just to kind of like fill out some, some descriptions and some information. Okay, so I have a little book report to share with all of you um, which is the plot of the Tain. Um, and Tain Bokulinge translates to the Battle of the Cattle Raid, but it's most, most often referred to as the Tain. Um, so the Tain begins with Maeve, daughter of King of Ireland, and Eliel, her husband. They rule over Connacht, a province given to Maeve from her father. This province is a matriarchal pre-Christian marriage and inheritance structure and regency in the British Isles. This is set in 1st AD before Christian conversion begins, as I said earlier. Maeve came to the marriage with her own goods and she also received her husband's goods. She is proud, skilled in battle, headstrong, determined, and cunning. Her name means she who intoxicates and this is where we get the word mead and Maeve is spelled M-E-D-B, M-E-D-B, and mead of course, (laughs) M-E-A-D if you weren't sure, so very close. Um, and all she wanted from her wedding gift from her husband would be a man without meanness, jealousy, and fear, who she finds in Allele. he's very supportive of her. So uh, we find Maeve and Aleel discussing their respective riches and what, e- what each brought to their marriage. Maeve claims that no one has more riches than she, especially not her husband. Mm-hmm. Maeve and Aleel compare everything that they have. Um, and Aleel does have one thing more than, a, than Maeve, uh, which is a prize bowl advantageous to battle and to their own protection. So Maeve orders her messenger to procure her a finer prize bowl for her own. Uh, the messenger suggests she take the legendary brown bowl of Kulingay from Ulster, which again is this province that is uh, central to the Ulster cycle, through the help of a man called Dare. Though not explicit in the tale, Maeve has a contentious history with Ulster and its king, Conhabar. Maeve promises Dare land, treasures, and sexual favors, which is a reoccurring theme through the Tain and through other stories uh, for the Brown Bull. However, she leaves out one critical piece of information. If Dare fails to send Maeve and Aleel the Brown Bull, their armies and the armies of their allies will invade Ulster and take it by force. So this is just the first few pages of the Tain, which is a 200 page epic. Maeve prepares her armies to retrieve the Brown Bull by any means necessary. She receives a warning from a magical being who tells her of a skilled, murderous warrior with supernatural sight and strength and the King Konhubar of Ulster's army. He leave death and havoc in his wake. He is 17-year-old Kuhulain, also known as the Hound of Ulster, who has been fighting and doing death-defying deeds since he was a child. He has the power to torque and transform into a grotesque, unstoppable creature. Kuhulain is the hero of this tale and the central figure in the Legends of the Ulster Cycle. Queen Maeve is essentially then the villain in the Tane, although the tale hinges on her side's perspective. Maeve and this are two sides of the same coin. They're both morally ambiguous, fearless, skillful warriors driven by their own cause. They're deeply protective of what they have, and they're aware of their power. So we find out that all the men in Ulster have been struck with a curse that makes them unable to fight. Inexplicably, only Kuhulane and his father are safe from this curse. This makes Kuhlain even more impressive and even more drawn to his vow to protect Ulster. At first, Kuhlain just deters Maeve's army's progress. Then he begins killing members of her army, first individuals, then tens, then hundreds, and then thousands. The plot portrays a multi-layered mission for Maeve. Steal the brown bull, kill Kuhlain, and plunder and lay waste to Ulster land along the way. It should be known that Cughlin doesn't really like killing. He does it out of necessity to protect Ulster or out of fits of rage when he's twerking. Though Maeve's army eventually does find the Brown Bull, their war against Cughlin persists and becomes more intense and desperate as he thwarts them. A series of failed truces, daring feats, duels in single combat, deception and manipulation, supernatural and mystical visits, grotesque transformations, and many, many bloody ends ensue. Just as Cúchulainn starts to weaken three-fourths of the way through the epic, the men of Ulster begin to rise from their curse, and they fight against Maeve's army. And after much bloodshed, Cúchulainn is sent into single combat with Fergus, who is an important figure. Um, he is a high-ranking member of Maeve's army, an occasional ally to Cúchulainn, um, but he comes, becomes committed to Maeve's cause after she seduces him. And Ailill is supportive of this. He, <laughs> he actually goes, well... I understand. That's good for her. We needed him on her side. Um, and so Cúchulain draws a pact made with Fergus. Cúchulain once spared Fergus, so Fergus has to do the same with him. Fergus surrenders and Connect withdraws the armies from Ulster. Maeve does capture the brown bull, and she agrees to retreat. And actually, Kuhlain comes across Maeve as they are all retreating, and he not only spares her life after the destruction she and her armies created, and the friends that, of Kuhlain that she killed, um, and the rivalry between the two kingdoms. So not only does he spare her life when he could have easily taken her out, but he guards her um, as she's about to leave. And Maeve does indeed bring back um, the brown bull to Connacht. It kills her husband's prized bull, it escapes their kingdom, and <laughs> the brown bull just roams around Ireland, dropping bits and pieces of the other bull along its way. And that's the end of the story. Um, <laughs> so Queen Maeve is very influential, especially in English literature. I would say more influential than Coo Um, I knew his name from like a child's book of um, legends and tales where he was the primary figure and Queen Maeve was just kind of like a little blurb because a lot of the tales of Ulster are about him. Um, but yeah, Queen Maeve is Mab in uh, Midsummer Night's, Night's Dream. Um, she's also the main figure in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Um, and I feel like in pop culture, she's she's known. Um, there's a character on The Boys, which is a Prime, an Amazon Prime show, and she's named Queen Maeve, and she's awesome, and I love that show. Um, yeah, so it's just interesting to see that She is kind of like, and Antonia Fraser talks about this, but she's like the prototypical sovereign goddess. So she's super powerful. She's aware of it. She kind of exploits stereotypes about women in terms of like promiscuity, sexuality, being cunning, deceptive. Um, She knows that these stereotypes exist even though she holds a great deal of power and she uses them to her benefit, which is is complicated and something that maybe we could talk about. but yeah, when we were talking about the show, Carlina said, wow, what a badass, and she really is. But she's also not the best. I mean, she <laughs> destroyed a whole region and killed many people and really hurt people um, in their livelihoods and their relationships, because she coveted this brown bull, which I think was an excuse just to like plunder Ulster. But um, it's it's not the it's not the best, I guess, how like steadfast she is. And it reminds me of a lot of like young adult novels (laughs) where the main character is a a lot like this and they do a lot of shady things, but um, they get away with it because they're just like headstrong. Uh, 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 So there's that. Uh, Another thing I found really interesting was that Kuhlain shows mercy to his enemy. I mean, maybe it's right there. And she caused so much, so many problems and he could have killed her and he, he didn't like, he doesn't like killing. He only does it when there's a purpose, whether it's from protection uh, for himself or for his land. So he has his own moral compass. Um, He's this great warrior protector of land and country. And I think there's a deal of, if not nationalism, like regionalism in that, Um, and like a respect for hierarchy and authority, like he defers to the king a lot and he believes in that system. Um, but he's also pretty lonely, like he has one woman that he sees, but she's just like briefly there. He can't have a lot of close confidants because everyone's trying to kill him. Um, and so he's just kind of on his own the whole story. And I think that affects who he is as a character. Um, and then last thing that I'll say is that I just kept thinking back to uh, like sovereign goddess types in the, in the Bible. So Uh, In the book of Judges, when you have Deborah, who's a prophetess, the only female judge, um, and she leads the people of Israel out of oppression through rebellion. And then Yael, who uh, welcomes the leader of the oppression into her tent and kills him by hammering a tent Uh, tent pin into his temple. Um, You have the book of Ruth, where Naomi arranges the night on the threshing floor between Ruth and Boaz to ensure lineage. Um, You have Esther, who like wields her beauty and her influence and power in order to save the Jews. Um, And then you have Judith. I love Judith so much. Um, She's a Deuterocanonical. She's in a Deuterocanonical book, which is the Apocrypha for Protestants. Um, And she uses her beauty to destroy an Assyrian general. And there are, like, classic paintings of this by Caravaggio and Artemisia Gentileschi. Uh, So you can, like, look her up. Um, But it's the same thing of women, like, using their sexuality and their power to save their people and use that as a political maneuver. But for Maeve, it's really just, like, out of jealousy, um, which you could read as like a political maneuver to, as an excuse to steal land from Ulster, but it's uh, uh, just, I don't know. Uh. And then I guess for Cuckoo you have Samson, who is like the closest parallel that I can think of, who wants power, but is also sometimes reluctant about it, who mostly follows the rules, but also kind of doesn't. Um, but Ku doesn't meet the same like tragic end that Samson does. So that that was a lot of information. Um, but I appreciate any thoughts or feedback you have about my namesake and about the man trying to stop my predecessor Maeve.
2: One thing that I find interesting was that Maeve's motivation seemed to be a uh, like competition between her husband about like material goods. And so like they're like kind of going back and forth about what items they own and what things and then she just doesn't have this bowl and she's like well really got to get a bowl because I need to be better or at least equal to my husband which I understand like I understand perhaps coming from a woman's perspective like trying to like keep some sort of balance or, or find a way that you can have the same amount of power but it seems like the gender roles weren't also operating in the same way necessarily back then, as you pointed out either. So I don't know, lots to think about. So the the first thing
1: that it made me think of when you were talking about how um, like using stereotypes to her advantage was Dolly Parton. (laughs) Yes, I love that because she like is she is, i don't know how to describe it but she like uses those tropes or like those um whatever gendered um expectations like against people like yeah that it's like actually they're laughing at her but like actually jokes on them because like she knows it the whole time and is like playing off those those expectation and those like the gender dynamics within society by itself I think is (laughs) just takes so much mental strategy you know that it just shows how intelligent a person is and it's like actually like jokes on you because like I've got it all figured out I'm not the dumb bimbo that you thought I was like if women are gonna exist in a society where the patriarchy like oppresses them or exists at all then you know, they might as well use it to their advantage to, you know, get what they want, you know, like, if it's gonna, like, be there anyway, like, screw that, go get
0: it. Maybe, you know, don't kill a bunch of people and like <laughs> bull. Yeah, it's really interesting because in the story, like, because this is, like, a later story in the Ulster Cycle, um, yeah, Connacht is one of the few regions that is still matriarchal, um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting how, like, Mabe is trying to hold on to that. Um, and there aren't other female, like, there aren't other women in the stories, uh, in this story, in the Tane. Um, so the only other female characters that you have are these, like, mystical, psychic creatures that aren't fully human that um, so there's one who is who represents death who comes and visits Kuhlain, um during one of his weaker points and like tries to also thwart him which is interesting but she's not really on Maeve's side but the other yeah all of the female characters they aren't fully human or they're bargaining chips so Maeve a few times like offers this woman in exchange for something political um, and we never hear her perspective. And also, like, we know that Kuhlain at the beginning of the story is sleeping with a woman, but we don't really know anything about her. Um, so, so I, I don't know. <laughs> I think Mavis kind of like a girl boss, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where she's like taking masculine qualities and trying to make that work, um, but also like, ex- like I said, like exploiting the stereotypes and the sexism that she lives in because she's just, she's working in a male dominated world, even though she is the queen of this region. And like, she has the power to unfortunately invade this land and kill people and plunder them. And um, she even participates in slavery. And so it's like very, uh, it's just, it's hard because she's, she is badass, but it's like, at, at what point do you say this is really problematic and I don't know if I can excuse this, but I can understand it. You know, I can empathize with it, but I don't think I can excuse it.
1: Like she doesn't take that one step further as to like push completely abolishing the system in which, you know, there are, there are slaves. She just like continues to profit and be privileged in the system, even though like at the same time, she is being oppressed and exploited by it herself.
2: Mm. (sighs) Well, and she also says that what she wants in her husband is a man without meanness, jealousy, or fear. Mm -hmm. And when you sort of see her character arc, it's almost as though like those are qualities that she has in herself in some certain way. And so she doesn't want to deal with that from her partner. And maybe it's operating at more of a subconscious level and I guess I'm getting a little bit psychological for you know mythical characters but I think that I relate to that in like wanting the things that we probably most despise in others can often stem from the things that we are most uncomfortable with about ourselves and so I think I see that in Maeve yeah
0: no, definitely. She has enough um, meanness, jealousy, and fear for the both of them, and she doesn't want anyone. She wants someone who is a little bit, I guess, subservient and okay with her lifestyle. Yeah, she's definitely uh, the alpha to Aleel's beta.
1: <laughs> but one thing I kind of wanted to to start off on was um, how... Th- this idea of of myths and legends can be applied to the Bible at large. For people who are in the Presbyterian Church USA, this is not super, well, it might be for some people, but not super controversial. But it might be, it's definitely controversial for a lot of, especially more conservative, mainline Protestant um, churches, is that personally, I feel like Especially things in the Hebrew Bible, whether or not they happened doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, what matters is that, to me, is that they can tell us about the human condition. Um, you know that I, I'm thinking specifically of of the creation story. Like, was the Bible was the world created in seven days? I mean, science says no, but like, also whether or not it was doesn't really matter it's just like there's this Greek word that I learned from Pastor Kate. Shout out Pastor Kate called audiophron, which is just like the these details that like don't matter. Like there's the core and then there's like audiophron. So I feel like a lot of what things that people get tripped up on, especially in, in you know, the creation, is this audiophron. Like it doesn't matter what day the birds were made. What matters is the point that shows that God is sovereign and God is creator, um, that there are these bigger messages within these these stories that we tell um, in the Bible. With that, um, I don't think most people who would be listening would disagree with that, but um, I know that that is generally, especially where like the denomination I grew up, which was very like fundamentalist, literal, like taking everything literally, That is very controversial, but um, I just think it's, I don't know, for me, it's just a lot more beautiful to think of like, what is the deeper meaning here and what can we take away from it rather than being tripped up on, you know, the details of it.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think I definitely take like a literary analysis approach to reading the Bible or reading the Bible as literature. I got, I I told Sarah about this, but I got a new study Bible. (laughs) <laughs> and um, it has a single column, so it looks like a book that you just pick up right from the books, you know, from the shelf of a bookstore, and I love it. I can't deal with the second, with the two column, the double column structure. It's just too many words. It gives me a headache. The page is already so flimsy, um, so I think for me, I need something that looks like a book. That's how I meditate on it. I need that space to write on it, um, I, I need to like scribble on my Bible. And I used to think that was like abhorrent. I don't think that anymore. I think that's how I process information. Um, and as I said at the top of the episode, it's something to meditate on. And I think whenever you have a tale that's fantastical, I mean, we were just like psychoanalyzing Maeve, right? <laughs> like you can you can take those elements and apply them to your own life, look like at your own psyche and your culture. And even if something, you know, even if you have like Goliath or you have Kuhlein, you can still look at these figures that you know are fantastical and that don't exist in the realm of reality as we know it and still think about how they apply to our life.
2: And it goes back to thinking about how do we define truth because a story can be true whether or not it actually happened for, for some of us.
1: Any final thoughts, anyone, as we put a bow on this,
0: this puppy. This is a lovely episode. I had so much fun researching and I love hearing how enthusiastic everyone was when we were, you know, bringing our stories. Like, it's really nice.
2: (laughs) I think we had a good mix of things from different locations and time periods. And I think like a common thread is just humans, you know, telling stories to try and shed like shed light into their own situations and origins and all of that stuff and so I feel like kind of a solidarity with humans from different places and times in that like everyone is in some sort of struggle to understand existence or know what to do with it or just live their daily lives and so finding deeper meaning through these stories is a worthy use of time. Well, Carlina just crushed
1: it. She just ended (laughs) the episode. (laughs) Amazing.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Carlina, for being on the show. You've added so much insight and wisdom and we loved your story.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I was nerding out as a big fan of the show to be able to come on. Uh, I'm not sure I will listen to the episode to hear my own voice, but I will laugh about the times that we had. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Relatable.
2: <laughs> wow. It's
1: been such a joy. Um final plugs, thanks to motion for our intro and outro music. Check them out on Spotify. Um I don't I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever
0: you find music. <laughs>
1: yeah wherever music
0: happens (laughs) we also have we now have a twitter thanks to sarah we did and then something happened but now we got it so follow follow our tweets she's back baby she's back uh we have a tumblr we have a website where we will be adding that resources page as we discussed earlier um, we have an email, molder at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts. I think that's pretty much it. Oh, and Facebook. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, Dinosaur Facebook. <laughs> the new Facebook <laughs> layout is horrendous, but Mystics and Molder is not, so uh, follow us.
1: <laughs> that should be fine. Facebook may be awful, but we're not. <laughs> 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 Ring them in. <laughs> Ah <laughs> jeez. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.